you know, uh, Moses tells the people, he says, I don't want you to allow your own desires to allow you to do your own thing, but you need to do the things of God. Keep sin out of our lives. Now, there was a reason for that. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, a program taking you through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We do that. This is our 33rd year of doing that, Janice. And anyway, this is a good program. I'm going to talk about that in five seconds. Corey is here, or in five minutes. Corey is here. Today, I'm going to be talking about vineyards and wine in ancient Israel and the ancient uh, Near East. Right? Well, in the New Testament, some Sadducees challenged Jesus on the biblical doctrine of resurrection using a passage that we read today, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. So we'll talk about it a little bit later on. Excellent, Janice. Things to consider. Okay, so take your Bible guide out and open it up to this page. This is going to be interesting. This is Deuteronomy 24, and let's hear God. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 6. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 24, 25, 26, and 27. We cover those passages of Scripture as we go through the Bible today. And the Lord, of course, is the creator of all things. And as human beings, we were created in his image. In fact, we're unique from any other of all the creation. And the image of God underpins the law as it is the basis for how we relate to one another and how we actually work together. Therefore, when the law of God speaks about relationships and ways to use money, it does so with all humanity as image bearers in mind, not just Israelite upper class. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 6 says, quote, No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge for one's living. Now, in other words, what he's saying is don't remove a way for a person to earn his pledge back because that's the same thing as 
making him a slave. Now, the reason given is not to make the wealthy richer. That wasn't the reason, but to rightly and fairly help the one in need. You see, serving our own desires is often a violation of serving God. Let me say that again. Serving our own desires is often a violation of serving God. Interesting, isn't it? Boy, it's fascinating. I'll tell you what, take your Bible guide and turn to today's passage as we look at Deuteronomy 24. Pledges and pledges and equality. That's what we're talking about. And uh, if you don't have a Bible guide, write for yours and we'll send it to you. Uh, if you call, it's better, it's faster. But if you go to Bible Discovery TV, that's really fast. You can have it in seconds. You're seconds away from joining us here. You can download it exactly how it's printed. And thank you for your giving. We really appreciate that. But Father, I pray today as we study this passage in Deuteronomy 24, the six verses here, that you would help us to hear what your Holy Spirit says to us, because we need to understand that you're talking to us. Now, I understand, Lord, and we get the fact that your son has come and died on the cross and rose again. And his name is Yeshua HaMashiach, that is Jesus the Christ. We understand that. But these laws are also eternal. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to see the principles of these laws as we read and work together in Jesus' name. Amen. Now look carefully at this because this is really interesting. It says in the scripture, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her, writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now there's a lot here, but we must not allow sin, that is violation of God, into our lives for the purpose of our own desires. Now look at that, read that carefully. We must not allow sin into our lives for the purpose of our own desires. We must make our decisions based on the needs of others, not just ourselves. We must make decision based on the needs of others, not just ourselves. Now, that's kind of strange sounding, isn't it? But that's the way God commanded his people to operate. So the principle is here, and there's a lot in this scripture. We could talk about a lot of things. But we talk about this one thing because we see it. We are to make decisions not based on what's good for us, but let's make decisions on the best way that other people can interact with us. Oh, I just got a bunch of people mad at me. That's for sure. I'll tell you right now. Well, there's only one thing to do. Go back to the scripture when you get mad at me. Verse 5 of chapter 24. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. 
He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Here we go again. A newly married man was given freedom to make his wife happy before going to war. You see, God highlights the responsibility of husbands. Husbands, did you know you have a responsibility? You do. In fact, I want to tell you something. Never in the Bible is the wife commanded to love her husband. Now, she's commanded to respect him and all of that, but never to love him. But the husband is commanded to love his wife. <laughs> and what does that remind you of? Well, we love him because he first loved us. Oh, I see. So the husband is to love the wife like Christ loves the church. I think that's in scripture too. We'll get to that later in the year. Isn't that interesting? That's very, very important. Now, as we read on, it gets even more interesting in verse six. It says, no man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in a pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. He takes one's ability to make a living in pledge. Here is the point that I want to make and that we have to understand. There must be mercy as well as justice. Mercy as well as justice when lending money. In, and in cases of debt, loans are to help people in need. They are not to make us rich. Loans are not to make us rich. When God says to the people, when you loan money, he had a day of atonement every 49 years. And he said, remember that at the 49th year, everything will be freed. All debt will be released and we'll start over again. Boy, that would be interesting if we had the jubilant year on a regular basis in North America, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, that becomes interesting. And it also means that the people who actually borrow the money cannot build on that and cannot make it good for themselves. See, God knows that our economies are designed to help us have a living, make a living. God is interested in every person making a living, not getting wealthy and not having, you know, dreams and doing this and doing that. But God's desire is for every man to have the food for his family and all the families to be wealthy and be able to eat. Now, I, I just need to look around the world and I can see 40 million people there, 20 million people here, and there's a lot of starvation happening. Sin has destroyed us, beloved. But as people of God move back into the obedience of the Lord, things begin to change. And that's how we deal with it. So the world problems aren't solved with politics. They're solved with the hearts of people changing, turning back to God and allowing God to work in their lives so that we can give properly and work properly. All right, let's keep that in mind. Welcome back to the program.
Today, my report is about Matthew chapter 22, which records how some Sadducees challenged Jesus regarding the biblical doctrine of resurrection. And to do it, they used Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10, which is a part of the Law of Moses and a part of our assigned reading today. But Jesus refuted them by pointing them to another passage in the Law of Moses. Check it out. At the turn of history, when Jesus Christ walked this earth, there were four different Jewish factions. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. Of these, the Pharisees and Sadducees were the ones who regularly opposed the teachings of Jesus. As a matter of fact, just after the Lord cleansed the temple for a second time, the Sadducees challenged him on the biblical doctrine of resurrection. Unlike the Pharisees who believed in the authority of the whole Tanakh, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of Moses as scripture. And since there were no apparent examples of life after death in the Pentateuch, they rejected the idea of bodily resurrection. This is why they decided to publicly challenge Jesus to a theological debate on this issue. And they begin by pointing to Moses' command in Deuteronomy 25.5 regarding leveret marriage which says that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. The Sadducees then proceed to tell Jesus about seven brothers. The first died after he had married, they explained, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of these seven will she be? For they all had her. To be sure, the Sadducees had concocted this story only as a means to mock the idea of life after the grave. But Jesus wasn't the least bit befuddled. You are mistaken, he said, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. The Lord here, in the same breath, was correcting not just one, but two of their errors. First, regarding the resurrection of the dead, but second, regarding the existence of angels. According to Acts 23.8, Sadducees did not believe in angels or spirits, and so by comparing the resurrection bodies of humans with angels, Jesus was effectively plucking two weeds with one pole. But then he returns to the main concern of the debate. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, he continues, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God through Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. As Jesus full well knew, the Sadducees would not accept his words or any words outside of the five books of Moses as authoritative, which is precisely why he ends off by quoting Exodus 3.6, which indisputably confirms that there is indeed a resurrection for God's own. And if there was any question of whom the victor of this debate was, the reaction of the people says it all. The Sadducees were silenced and the crowd was astonished. Now, I know that there's a lot of great Bible commentaries out there, but the truth is nothing can compete with the commentary that our Lord Jesus Christ gives. As a matter of fact, when any of the Holy Spirit-inspired authors of the Bible interpret other biblical passages, we need to accept those interpretations as facts. You know, one of the very first rules of Bible study is interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Yes, like I said, there are a lot of good Bible commentaries available, but none of them are totally without error, even the one you're watching right now. 
only scripture can hold to that perfect standard. It's very important to keep that in mind. I think it is, and we need to say that on television and on the internet and wherever you're seeing us, because a lot of people come on the air and they say, God said this and God told me that. What? Okay, but God does not say or tell anything that is not already told in the Word of God, in the Bible. So we need to understand what the Bible says before we, you know, start putting these people up here. Uh, we need to listen to God. Because Absolutely. That's really Be important. like those Bereans, right? Do your Absolutely. own study. And, I mean, we, we have to yeah, do our own real. study. Yeah. It's really, really I important. I mean, mom says it all the time on the show. We're not perfect here, right? We're doing our best, but we're still human beings. So. Totally agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Ryan. Corey? All right, so today I wanted to take a look at vineyards in ancient Israel and this concept of wine in ancient Israel, because so far, as we've been reading through Deuteronomy, we've stumbled across vineyards and wine quite a few times. And the idea of plentiful vineyards and, and, and planting and growing and harvesting and creating uh, from the products of the vineyard was a blessing that God had given to Israel. I mean, think about it. They had been slaves in Egypt, devoid of owning land, not able to harvest and grow their own crops, but rather doing that for their Egyptian overlords and ultimately Pharaoh. Then they'd been in the wilderness for a really long time. And now finally, here they are being able to go into the promised land and plant their own fields and plant their own vineyards. So, so far, even just in the last few chapters, we've seen that an exemption for a man going for war is had he planted a vineyard that he had not yet harvested from, well, then he didn't have to go to war because that was a blessing of God that he was allowed to enjoy the fruit of that. We see wine being offered to God uh, as fellowship offerings and as drink offerings, thank offerings in the tabernacle as well. Uh, And in today's uh, reading in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we see that vineyards were a part of the gleaning laws, meaning that they had to leave some grapes in their vineyards so that people who didn't have their own vineyards or had fallen on hard times could also enjoy the fruit of the promised land. With all of this backdrop in mind, let's take a look at vineyards and wine in ancient Israel. The importance of vineyards and their produce to ancient Israel is obvious. In the Bible, wine was widely used in the religious offerings of the law. Vineyards were a common analogy used by the prophets of God, and a grapevine and cluster were brought back to the Israelites as evidence of the fruitfulness of the land before the conquest. Overall, grape production was a large part of the agriculture and society of ancient Israel. Generally, grapevines were cultivated on their own, apart from other fruits and vegetables. There were, however, private orchards and royal gardens that grew grapevines with other fruit trees. These pleasure gardens were generally located close to a home or within a royal city for immediate access to fresh fruit and a beautiful space to relax. The bulk of grapes and their products were cultivated alone in vineyards. Depending on terrain, vineyards could be right next to cities or quite far away from settlements. They could be irrigated or depend solely on rainfall. They could be walled or left unprotected. The prophet Isaiah famously described the founding of a vineyard. His process includes preparing the ground, likely by uprooting plants, bushes, and trees, and clearing stones, then planting the chosen vines, building a wall or fence, probably with the stones removed from the vineyard, watchtowers were added for extra security, and a wine press was cut out of bedrock to process grapes into wine. 
due to growing conditions, separately owned vineyards with their own walls could exist close together, which would create narrow pathways for travelers, just like what's described in the Balaam incident and possibly even the lion attack against Samson. Inside the vineyards, grapevines could be allowed to grow on the ground, or to make for easier harvesting and upkeep, the vines would be trained up poles and trellises. When harvest time came, it was cause for great celebration, especially the first usable harvest, which wouldn't have occurred until the fifth year of production for law-following Israelites. The crop of the first three years was to be left, and the fourth year's crop was given to God. Harvest time meant fresh grapes, wine, raisins, vinegar, and a type of grape syrup. It meant singing songs of joy, giving offerings of thanks, and pruning the empty vines for next year's growing season. Vineyards, grapes, and wine were seen as integral to the blessings of God on Israel. If Israel were to reject the covenant they had with God, the loss of their vineyards and their inability to harvest them would be one of the consequences. On the flip side, vineyards were a vital blessing of God to be joyfully celebrated by his covenant people. This is reflected clearly in the rules for warfare. If a man had planted a vineyard and had not yet harvested from it, remember that it could not be harvested until the fifth year, then he was exempt from going to war. The fruit of the vineyard was a blessing from God to be enjoyed. I find it really interesting to think about the concept of what it was to make things like wine, to make things like bread for in the ancient mind. It's as if we are joining uh, with God in his creative activity, transforming what he has created for us in, in this world into something that is life-sustaining and life-giving and meant to be enjoyed. It made me think of Psalm 104 that's talking about how God has blessed humanity. And this is what it says. He, God, makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth and wine that gladdens human hearts and oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. You know, this creation is so full of things of blessing, from God. And I, and I just, I love thinking about that as we continue reading through Deuteronomy and trying to understand the world uh, fr- in a way that ancient man, ancient Israelites would have seen it. So this would have been seen as a great blessing. Yeah, that it really is interesting, Corey. Thank you so much for that report. Janice? Well, today, some things to consider from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so many people struggle with some of these chapters in the Old Testament, like, what does that have to do with us today? It's so boring to go through this. Isn't it the Old Testament anyway? Shouldn't we just stick to the new? Absolutely not. And this program encourages you to read the Bible in its entirety from the beginning, Genesis 1, all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. There is nothing in this word that is not relevant to us today. I wanted to talk about these things to consider because in this chapter, we're reading about the laws concerning divorce. And this was what God had um, commanded to his people, Israel. And then we we look at miscellaneous laws about safeguarding life and consideration of people in need. This is really what this chapter deals with. And it seems to be here, if we really stop and consider, that every choice that we have in life bears out consequences, not only for us, 
but for the people around us. And we need to take those choices seriously. We need to take the choices that we make in life seriously because they will not only impact us, but they will dramatically impact the people around us. So I have in my notes here, while our customs and our cultures may differ, the way that God wants us to seek him first and then love others as ourselves has not and will not change. Remember what Jesus said when he was asked by one of the the religious people about what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And he continued and he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in order to understand the love of God, his love is very different than how we perceive love is. It's really important for us not to turn up our noses at what's in the Bible or even roll our eyes as we're reading things and saying, well, you know what, that's that's old news. Or I've heard you refer to it before, Rod, which upsets you as old school and new school. Um, you know, we, we cannot set ourselves up in that way, to think that somehow we have attained a higher level of understanding, a more sophisticated way of civilization than they had here. It's just simply not true. And we need to just, when we come to the Word of God, we need to take the time to think and meditate and pray first and ask God to help us to understand what's in here. And that's why we're here. We are here as a family and as a ministry to go through the Bible together with you. And Rod mentioned, I don't know if it was today's program or yesterday's, this is our 33rd year. That doesn't make us special. That just shows you how amazing this book is. This book can be read hundreds of thousands of times times over, and we will still learn because it's the living word. And so we invite you to do that. We invite you to know what's in God's word, to seek him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And if there are things that that we don't understand, we're going to ask and we're going to keep seeking and looking. Remember the Roku box. It's a great little box that sits on your TV set. You can buy it at Walmart, buy it somewhere in your stores, and it comes home, takes your internet, and you can make anything you wanna see from Christian channels there. One of them is Bible Discovery TV and all the programs that you're watching now. Some of you may be watching on Roku. So check out Roku. Let's pray today. Lord, help me to hear and obey your call on my life. I wanna follow you. In Jesus' name, 